Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. We've been doing a series here, if you're new, called New. <laughs> and the series is called New. And it's all about how God has made us new through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that when we put faith in Christ, we're changed. And our, our theme scripture has been 2 Corinthians five seventeen. If anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. And we've been learning that. And last week, we learned that God has given us weapons And we need weapons because if we're going to live in the new life that He created us for, we need weapons to overcome sin and the darkness of the age that we live in. So we learned about words like revive, remember, remind, renew, refocus, and repair. And that's what we talked about last week. Well, this week, we're going to learn that God is making all things new. And that's really what I want to look at. I want to look at the fact that God is making all things new, and I want to take you into your future. I want to take you into your tomorrow. I want you to look down the road a little bit. In fact, it's going to take your holy imagination for you to go where I want to go today. So I'm going to ask you just to, you know, kind of privately between you and God, ask Him to give you a holy imagination right now, to quicken your imagination And help you think about where we're going. I want to start with a little story from a pastor named Benjamin Reeves. And this is from a sermon he did called Living Expectantly. He shares this story. He was just a little fellow. His mother died when he was just a child. His father, in trying to be both mommy and daddy, had planned a picnic. The little boy had never been on a picnic. So they made their plans, fixed the lunch, and packed the car. Then it was time to go to bed, for the picnic was the next day. The problem was, the little boy couldn't sleep. He tossed and he turned, but finally the excitement got to him. He got out of bed, ran into the room where his father had already fallen asleep, and shook his father awake. His father woke up and saw his son, and he asked him, What are you doing? What's the matter? The boy said, I can't sleep. The father asked, Why can't you sleep? In answering, the boy said, Daddy, I'm excited about tomorrow. His father replied, Well, son, I'm sure you are, and it's going to be a great day. But it won't be great if we don't get some sleep. How many of you parents of little ones can relate to that right there, huh? So why don't you just run down the hall, get back in bed, and get a good night's rest? So the boy trudged off down the hall to his room and got in bed. Before long, sleep came to the father. Wow, you're a tough crowd today. It wasn't long after that before the little boy was back, and he was pushing and shoving his father, and his father opened his eyes, and just as harsh words almost blurted out of his mouth, he saw the expression on the boy's face, and the father asked him, what's the matter now, son? And the boy said, Daddy, I just want to thank you for tomorrow. Pastor Benjamin Reeves continues, When I think about my past and the fact that a loving father would not let me go, that he reached down in his divine providence and lifted me off the streets of Harlem, 
when I think of what he's done for me and then think that he is planning a new thing for me that will surpass everything in the past. Let the record show this night in this place that Benjamin Reeves testified, Father, I want to thank you for tomorrow. Amen. My hope for you today is that you will go with me right now and begin to thank God for your tomorrow. For your ultimate tomorrow is the key to your today. And I'm going to show you what I mean here in just a minute. We're going to look at our tomorrow. Now, I'm not just talking about your tomorrow next week, next month, next year, your retirement, your old age, the things you're going to accomplish. I'm, not talking, I'm talking about your tomorrow that extends beyond life right now, your ultimate tomorrow, your ultimate destiny. And we're going to go to Revelation 21, 1 through 6, first part of the verse, and I, I want you to see this and go there with me. Now, I, I want to say this right off the bat. A lot of us unfortunately, avoid reading the book of Revelation. Is there anybody that can relate to that? Many Christians I know avoid it because it's weird, right? You got dragons rising out of the ocean, and you got weird creatures, and you got beasts with all these horns, and it's kind of freaky, and so people avoid it because they don't understand it. But what I want you to understand is that the ultimate message of Revelation is that Jesus And his people triumph over the dragon, the antichrist, and the evil. And the ultimate end of things is that God makes it all right. As I heard a preacher say years ago, the the message of the revelation is not the antichrist. The message of the revelation is God wins with us. So we come to toward the end of the book and we come to the 21st chapter and A little background real quick, Uh, Revelation was written by the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John and the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And John was an apostle that was known as the Apostle of Love. Some scholars say that they couldn't kill him. All the other apostles were martyred. Paul lost his head to Nero. Peter was crucified upside down. And they tried to boil John in oil, and they, they couldn't accomplish it. So they finally thought, well, we can't kill the guy. Let's put him somewhere on an island, and that'll shut his mouth. And they put him on the island of Patmos, and there on the island of Patmos, he was caught up into heaven, and he wrote the book of Revelation. So this is what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now, I told you it's going to take your holy imagination 
for you to be able to really grasp what God wants to say to you today. But the first thing I want to talk about, let's just look at it, is the writer says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now the word new here, it's a Greek word that does, it doesn't mean new in time, but it means new in quality of a different nature in contrast to the old. Heaven here is not speaking of the dwelling place of God. In other words, it's not speaking of the place where God sits on a throne. But heaven here is speaking of the earth's atmosphere and space with all of its planets, stars, galaxies, etc. And there's also a lot of debate between scholars as to whether the new earth will completely replace, will replace a completely destroyed old earth Or will the old earth go through a purification and renovation similar in nature to what will happen to our bodies in the resurrection? Now, personally, I believe the scripture teaches the second. I believe it teaches that the earth will be completely restored to a perfect place without decay or corruption. The earth, as it were, will go through a resurrection like our bodies will go through, and the earth will be changed by a process of God, a glorious process, and there will be a new earth that's a resurrected earth. And then it says the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The old heavens and the earth will be completely renovated so as to be almost without recognition. The heavens and the earth will pass away to reveal a complete new order without corruption, decay, death, sorrow. None of those things will be there. And then it says this, the sea will be no more. That's interesting language. The ESV study Bible says this, the sea was no more does not mean there won't won't be any bodies of water in the new earth, but it refers to the source of earthly rebellion, chaos, and danger, the sea from which the beast emerged. This symbolic source of rebellion will no longer threaten creation's perfection. I made a note here. The sea was and is a place of unknown terror, darkness, and power. Now, I don't know if you've ever sailed on the ocean or not, but I have. I've been on a sailboat out on the ocean before. I've been on a fishing vessel out on the ocean before. And I'm going to tell you what. If you get out there and it gets even a little crazy, that place is super intimidating. And in the ancient world, the sea was the place where all chaos came from. In the book of Job, we learn about the creature Leviathan. And he came from the sea. And to the ancient world, the ancient mind, the sea was a source of darkness, of beasts, of things that would destroy human beings and human civilization. And we see this confirmed in Revelation 13.1. Look at what it says in Revelation 13.1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. How many of you know that's pretty freaky? With ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Most scholars believe, and I would agree with this, that that's the Roman Empire it's speaking about. So he's saying, out of the chaos of the world and humanity rose this empire that was a beast that destroyed and crushed. And then it says this. So so that is put away. That that source of chaos and death and darkness and pain is put away. And in its place, what comes? I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Think about it. A holy city, pure, set apart, morally perfect, clean. It's a contrast to our current cities, which are always such a mixture of the wonderful good 
and the amazing evil and decay. Listen, it doesn't matter how cool a city is. If you love Seattle or San Francisco or New York City or there's some city you've been to, Hong Kong or Shanghai or, or you've been to you know, some other great city of the world, one thing you will never say about that city is it's a holy city. Isn't that true? You'll say, what will we say about cities? Man, it's amazing. The art there, the museums there, the, the, the amount of traffic. It's crazy. The skyscrapers. And oh yeah, I went to this great show in New York on Broadway and we walked outside and immediately we were confronted with, and then add your own storyline, confronted with darkness, with decay, with death. Cities are a mixture, but this is a holy city, set apart, morally perfect and clean, pure, beautiful. And then we would, we, the old Jerusalem, by the way, and it says also it's the new Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem has passed away too with all of its pain, war, conflict, all of its history, all the battles that have taken place there. And this new Jerusalem, which is truly God's city, comes down and replaces it. It's the abode of God's people, the holy people in a holy city. And it says, it's coming down out of heaven from God. And this is beautiful language because one of the things that we see continually in the story of the Bible, and it's, it's brought most clearly to us in the person of Jesus, but the story of the Bible is when man tries to make his way to God on his own, he builds towers like Babel. But when God is going to redeem humanity and is going to set the planet right and set you and I right, he comes down to us. And so we see in this time of the year as we celebrate Christmas and the fact that God became a baby in the person of Jesus Christ. He incarnated himself. He infleshed himself. God came and took on a bod. God in a bod. That's what we celebrate in, during Christmas time. Well, here we see that all of that is brought to its ultimate climax when God comes to us completely with a new city from heaven. And... Jesus comes down, and then from that point on, God's been in the process of bringing his city to earth. His city is the kingdom of heaven. And that kingdom came 2,000 years ago when Jesus arrived on the scene. It's coming currently. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know that every time God touches a life, every time somebody's prayed for up here and God's spirit touches them and they have a sense that they've been healed in their body or God's making something right in their thinking or they go home and uh, their marriage is reconciled. Every time a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they repent and turn from their sin and they're born of God. Every time you give a, cla a glass of cold water in his name, every time you show compassion to someone, every time you do right when you're tempted to do wrong, every time you engage in a righteous act, every time that happens, the kingdom of heaven floods the earth through you. You become an instrument of a flooding kingdom that comes through you and I. Every time you reach out your hand and you touch a life and you pray for the sick, you show kindness to somebody, you show compassion, the kingdom of heaven comes to earth. And that's been happening since the time of Jesus. Of course, it happened even before him, but it's especially been happening since he came on the scene. It happened through the apostles. It's been happening for the last 2,000 years. It's happening right now. And in the very end, God will make it all happen with a climactic climactic scene of bringing heaven to earth. And finally what we'll see is the two realms, the material and the spiritual that are separated by this veil that came into the world through sin and death. It will be removed 
and the two will marry and become one once and for all. And to a degree, we're already a part of that. When you're born of God, heaven comes to live inside of you. There's a little bit of the kingdom of heaven that's deposited on earth and begins to spread out from you. But that day will be the fruition of it all. Does this make sense? And then it says this city. Think about the language here. Could have used a lot of different kinds of language, but the language is, it's, is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This city is prepared and beautiful like a bride. Jesus has been preparing this city for us for 2,000 plus years. Great cities always have art, architecture, and wonder which can take your breath away. This city will so completely outclass anything we've ever seen that will be awestruck by its preparation and beauty. It's been created to fit us and give us pleasure. I want you to think about it because, you see, a lot of us, we don't think about eternity. A lot of us, we're only invested in what's temporal. Our life and our desire for heaven doesn't go any further than I hope I can create a really good retirement portfolio. The furthest, we think, we're going to create our own perfect utopia. That we're going to create our own perfect little world. And then what we see that inevitably happens is things come in. There's a presence on planet earth, right? It's a presence of sin. It's a presence of evil. It's a kingdom of darkness. And it's pushing back. And it's fighting all the time. And we're trying to create our own little heavens. And we realize that things continually unravel. And some of the reason we get so wrecked when they unravel is because we're not people that think about our tomorrow. We haven't learned to say thank you for tomorrow. See, somewhere we've bought into the idea that to be, somebody once said, I heard this, to be, don't be too heavenly minded, it'll make you of no earthly good. That is an absolute lie. If you're truly heavenly minded, if you truly care about that which is eternal, it will cause you, and I'll read this in a little bit from C.S. Lewis, but it will cause you to actually do the most good here. Because when you get a glimpse of what the kingdom is like, the atmosphere of the kingdom is restoration, reconciliation, healing, changed lives. You're like, oh, we got to bring some of that right here. We got to make right what's wrong, straight what's crooked. We got to fix what's broken. Okay, so this city has been created for us. I want you to think about that. There's a city created for you. A lot of people, when they think about heaven or the new heavens and the new earth, they often think in terms of, I'm going to be a chubby baby playing a harp and floating on a cloud? What, we're going to have eternal bliss and peace? It sounds boring. Have you ever noticed that every time Hollywood tries to make a movie that depicts heaven or the afterlife, that they do a lot better job of depicting hell than they do heaven? Seriously, think about it. Hollywood, and, and have you ever noticed that they always make the bad characters more compelling? You find yourself like, yeah, I like the bad boys. You, you, you talk to actors and they always say this, I like playing bad guys. Because their characters are often a little more complex and they take more acting props. You got to have your skills to be the bad guys, right? Because we don't seem to have the capacity to wrap our head around what ultimate good is. And we see boredom in it. And what we don't realize is the city that God has created for us, it matches each of us exactly as we're created to be. 
Are you athletic? Are you a creative? Are you a musician? Are you a builder? Do you like to plan? What is it you're really good at? What is it, you know what I'm talking about when you touch it, when you do it, life comes into you. Those moments in life, you know what I'm talking about, those moments in life when you're going along and you touch something and you do something and you, you, it's almost as though you feel like this is giving me joy and pleasure I've never had before. And when I do it, I feel fulfilled. When I do it, I know I have the smile of God. Everybody in the world could be opposed to it, but I know I have the smile of God and it gives me pleasure. That thing that you were created to do will continue on into the new heavens and the new earth. You're not going to be bored. You're going to have eternity to get really good at the stuff that you're just a little bit good at right now. And then you're going to get to do it with others. Can you imagine being on the other side of eternity, getting all the musicians together? Everybody's sharing what they can do, and there's no competition. It's all like, man, that's beautiful. Keep doing it. Yes, show me more. Teach me. Am I talking to anybody? And then it says this. I got to move, obviously. Oh, boy, Jesus, help me. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, God is dwelling with people, and they are his people. That's what this voice said. This is the story of the whole Bible. God has been creating places to come down and dwell among us because he loves us and made us for his pleasure and company. He started in the Old Testament. He had to build altars, and those were according to his command. And then they built tents, and God dwelled in the tents. And then they built temples, and God dwelt in the temple. And then in the New Testament, Jesus came, and he was the temple. And God came to us in in a flesh, in a body temple. But then Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit came in to dwell in a temple. Did you know we're now the temple? He doesn't dwell in a city on earth anymore. You are the city on earth. You are the temple of the living God. You are the dwelling place of God. And then ultimately, there's gonna be this city made up of God and his people and all the stuff he's been working on for 2,000 years. I want you to think about this. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, ascended and he said, I, I go to prepare a place for you. Ooh, doggy. There's not a city on this earth that has been continually building without decay and corruption for 2,000 years. Rome fell into ruins. And, and we got you know, really limited resources here. But God has all the resources he needs. The scripture seems to indicate, because we don't often have the language, the scripture seems to indicate that the The streets are transparent gold. Something akin. It must be some kind of heavenly gold that we don't have on earth. That the gates to the city are actually not made up of a bunch of pearls, but each of the gates is like a giant pearl. Now, I understand the writer was trying to express things with things we have on earth. But I want you to know the city that is made for us which is the ultimate reality of where we're going to dwell for eternity. It is beyond anything you can wrap your little puny brain around. My little puny brain too. Okay? And then God will dwell with us. Think about it. We'll belong to Him and He'll belong to us in a marriage covenant. And He'll be our God. And this is really important. The language is picked by the writer, very specifically, the Holy Spirit, showing him what to write. It says, and God will be their God. What does that mean? God will truly, finally be our God forever, without competition. 
the days of our idol worship and making gods of pleasure, and money and sex and drugs and substances and power and violence and war and spirits and the moon, the stars, the sun and all of creation, all those false gods, the days of this heart manufacturing idols to worship. And let me tell you, every human being's heart manufactures idols to worship. Our hearts are factories for idols. They're very good at it. That'll finally be over. And we won't be easily pulled away and distracted, but God will be our God. (laughs) And then what will he do? Yeah, he will wipe away every tear. I love the language. All the suffering and pain will be abolished with the tender hand of God wiping our tears away. As a mommy or daddy wipes away the tears of a little child and comforts their little soul, God will wipe away our tears as everything that has ever happened will make sense and be recreated to be beautiful. I don't know how he's going to do it. C.S. Lewis makes the statement about him somehow making time work backwards. But somehow God's going to take the murders and the deaths and the wars and the pain and the suffering and the rejection and the broken relationships. He's going to take the things and that we turned over to him and we wept out to him and we, we grieved over. He's going to take all of those things and out of that he's going to make something beautiful so that when we stand before him, even the pain, the loss, the sin, the death will be redeemed. And then what will happen? There will be no more death. This is so foreign to us because death is unavoidable. But a day is coming when death will be abolished to never happen again. Not just physical death. Death of relationships. Death of dreams. Death of beauty. Death of pleasure and enjoyment. Death of joy and love. All death will end. You'll never again have to grieve and mourn death. Death of anything, a separation, a breaking of it. I just want you to think about this life. This life is constant death. Think about it with me. We are practicing death on this side of eternity. Constant. What is death? It's giving it up. It's laying it down. We're even told to take up our cross, to die daily, to die to the old way, die to our selfish ways, die to the sinful ways, because in that we have resurrection life. But what is this life? This life is the practice of letting things go. And the reason that we have so much pain is because we grasp and hold and we won't let go and that's sin. It's like, it's mine. I can't let it go. If I let it go, what will happen to me? And we don't realize many times in the letting go and the dying comes the life of God that floods into us. That will end. The struggle will end. The battle will end. The conflict will end. And there'll be no mourning. Mourning will end. No more funerals. No more phone calls in the middle of the night. No visits to our front door to announce horrific news. No more gut-wrenching pain inside. No more deep loneliness. No more being triggered by unexpected songs, smells, words. Any of you that have ever lost somebody that's really dear to you, you know what I'm talking about. Certain things. There's still times I wake up in the middle of the night. I'm not just saying this. I wake up in the middle of the night and I'll have a memory about my little sister Jessica who died of a drug overdose 12 years ago. And I'll just have all of this sadness flood into my heart. There's coming a day when the mourning will be removed. And I'll never mourn again. There's coming a day when there'll be no more crying. No more crying about terrible and painful things. Personally, I think we'll still have tears of joy and laughter. Okay, I don't think God's going to abolish tear ducts. But the point of the writer is we'll never experience the tears of loss, sadness, rejection again. Because I'm telling you what, 
A good belly laugh accompanied by streaming tears, it's one of the best things in life. And if that goes away, it will be replaced by something better. Am I talking to anybody? No pain. No physical, emotional, mental, spiritual pain ever again. If you live with pain, if you have a hard time getting up in the morning, if pain dogs your life and it seems like it just wears on you and, you're, and you can't wait, you just, sometimes you just think, gosh, if I could just put myself out of my own misery, because some people live that way. Pain wears you down, it tires you out. Emotional pain does that to you. Childhood trauma does that to you. Rejection, abuse, regret, injuries, sickness, all of it, it just wears you. That pain inside, the pain will end. The former things have passed away. The tears, the death, the mourning, the crying, the pain, it'll all die, they'll all pass away forever. Now you might be saying, this sounds awful pie in the sky. You hope you're not giving us a false hope. I'm not. I'm giving you a true hope. I love what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. He says, this means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages. The evangelicals of England who abolished the slave trade. All of them left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. I love that. I'm almost done. Are you still with me? As I jokingly say, I'm coming in for a landing. I might circle the airport a couple of times, but I'm waiting for the tower to give me the go-ahead. Here we go. And then it says, and he who is seated on the throne speaks. And what's he say? Behold, I am making all things new. God gives us a glimpse of what that new world will look like. But truthfully, we don't have the language to describe it accurately. We know that everything wonderful that's been lost will be restored or replaced with something better. Think about it. We know that love, joy, peace, pleasure, relationships, creativity, life, etc. will be at a level we've only glimpsed, tasted, smelled, or seen the shadow of in comparison to what will be revealed. The glory of everything, of art, of music, of beauty, of creation, of fellow human beings, and ultimately God Himself will continually take our breath away and satisfy our deepest longings and desires. This is really important. And let me tell you, when you arrive in heaven, if you have loved ones that are there, you will rejoice. Some of you, you're really looking forward to that day so you can see your loved ones. And I want to tell you, it will be a glorious reunion. But, and it will last for eternity. But I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you. You're going to come into the presence of God, and for a moment, you're going to rejoice in seeing the ones you love, but then your eyes are going to be averted quickly, because they're going to be averted. They're going to be like, it's so good to see you. I love you. It's been, well, I have so much to tell you, and I've been here for years, and let me tell you what's going But before we do that, look, and as you look upon him, I mean, I want you to think about this. Whatever you love, whatever is beautiful to you, whether it's a person something in creation, art, music, whatever moves you, 
whatever causes you to well up with emotion and strikes you deep within, all of it came out of God. You see, God isn't just a maker that's disconnected, but it's all part of His very character and nature. So think about this. You'll see the people you love, and then you'll see the one who made the people you love. And you realize they came out of Him. And you'll be captivated by Him. And for eternity, like looking at a multifaceted diamond that's hit by a different piece of light, and it turns and we catch a new glimpse. You can see why the angels, the seraphim who have six wings, two they cover their eyes, two they fly with, and two they cover their lower body. It says of them, they continually say to the Lord, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, heaven and earth are filled with your glory. It's not because they have some kind of computer chip in them that makes them go, Holy, Holy, Holy. It's not because of that. It's because they're seeing Him. And they're seeing Him. And they're seeing Him. And every time they see Him, they're captivated and carried away with His holiness and His beauty and His glory. That's what's going to happen to us. He's going to be everything we've ever looked for, wanted, hungered for, desired. And then it finishes by saying this. Write down these trustworthy and true words. And we did in the Bible, right? Hold on to these promises. Believe it to be true. Jesus, listen, Jesus came the first time in answer to promises and prophecies 2,000 years ago. He'll come again and He will make all things new. He will recreate the world with His Father and Holy Spirit and all of our pain and suffering will end. So we must hold on to these words because they are trustworthy and true. I love the language. Write these down. They are trustworthy and true. Why did the writer say that? Because Christians at that time were suffering under Nero or Domitian, depending on when you believe the revelation was written. They were suffering under an emperor who was crucifying them by the thousands, who was taking their lives. They were having their property taken from them. They were being thrown to lions. Their lives were under a pressure we can't even begin to realize. And so we say, listen, in the midst of your suffering and everything you're going through, write this stuff down because this is your ultimate destiny and we overcome the dragon and all the evil that goes with him. And then he says, it's done. Jesus hung on the cross and said, it's finished, when he gave his life and his blood to redeem and restore us. And then he says it again, it is done. And this is, it is done now. I've recreated it all. I've renewed it. Everything we've been working toward, it's completed now. And now we get to begin the process together of enjoying it and maybe adding to it. I don't know. I I can tell you, I don't know what happens after that time begins. But I do know it's way better than anything we've known to this point. And then he says this to finish, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Using the first and last Greek letters to signify who he is as Alpha and Omega, he declares he started it and he will finish it. It's like he would say to us, I am your A to Z. You can count on me. It's done. I'm the whole alphabet, baby. Everything in between. He, and I love it, really, what's he saying? I get the last word. I get the last word. Death doesn't, sin doesn't, evil doesn't, an antichrist doesn't, a dragon doesn't. Nobody gets the last word. I get the last word. I'm alpha, omega, I'm beginning, I'm in. It's done, it's done, it's done. Woo, wrap this one up, baby. It's a wrap. He's the last word. Why don't you stand with me?